and he goes around to the front of the house to this little funky mausoleum that Aladdin Khan is buried in. And he and the door is propped open, dark out, and sitting in the dirt is Ravi Shankar with his sitar. Behind him is Alaraka with no tabla. Behind him is Ashish Khan because it's narrow. And Ali Akbar sits in right at the door in at the head of his father's coffin. And I'm behind him playing tambura. And these two are facing each other and we're lined up behind them. And they're playing to the father. This podcast is offered through the Sacred Community Project, an inner spiritual collective working to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. Through the universal teachings of love, service, remembrance, and truth, SCP utilizes modern technology to promote eternal values. Learn more at sacredcommunityproject.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sacred Community Podcast. This is Hari, and this is part two of my interview with Daniel Paul. In this part of the interview, we'll be discussing how Daniel ended up becoming the personal assistant for Ali Akbar Khan, as well as stories from On the Road and their time playing with Zakir Hussain, um, as well as one of my favorite stories that was used in the introduction um, of going and playing at the tomb of Alaudian Khan and uh, the people that were present there. So if you haven't had the chance to listen to part one, I recommend you go and do that. And uh, this one will will be a little bit more stories on his time specifically traveling on the road and then exploring a little bit of, you know, what it's like going into an Indian classical concert as well as uh, how Raga kind of works. So I hope you enjoy and see you again soon. So I was wondering, you know, if we could jump back into a little bit of your time at the college and, you know, transitioning into working for Ali Akbar Khan. Such wonderful memories. So I, I grew up singing and I grew up playing harmonica and in a little trio with some beautiful brothers from high school and when I saw Zakir and the and the orchestra playing and finally ended up at the college my first year was really difficult I mean because as a musician I wanted to know I mean this is common with all of us westerners I think we we want to know what is going on right away Mm -hmm. how do you do this you know and and it don't come easy you know (laughs) If you didn't grow up hearing it, it's different. Mm-hmm. And my first year, I remember being so frustrated one day after vocal class that I walked out of the school and we were, there was a, like a little park across the parking lot and I went a little out of sight and I pulled out my harmonica and I blew that thing with all my rage and anger at not being able to, I to mean to say, I was wailing, you know. And Ali Akbar Khan has many children, and his eldest, Ashish Khan, who also plays Sarod and is still alive today, and teaches at Cal Arts, or did, 
he comes running across the parking lot and find, hears me and sees me playing. And I kind of, I didn't know him very well. And he says, oh, my God, you have to be in my rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> and he played Sirod, and he didn't study with his father so much. He studied with his father's father, with Alaudin Khan. Because mm. Ali Akbar Khan left at a certain point, and Alaudin was the great teacher at that point. Now, uh, Ali Akbar went to Mumbai to find his fame and fortune and get away from his crazy father who wouldn't stop teaching him mm. <laughs> and demanded super perfection all the time. So Ashish Khan was, is a monster great road player and composer and used to compose for dance drama for these dance dramas with Chitresh Das the big ones I talked about beautiful mastery over the, the, the emotions of Raga and how to use that in the stories of the the Ramayana you know we used to do the Ramayana all the time mm. or, or one small section the Sita Haran you know we call it and just be about Sita and one section of that. So Ashish loved Western music and really loved to have a rock and roll band. He had had one earlier called Shanti. The one I came along with he called Third Eye. And it was all Western instruments. And his brother, his younger brother Pranish Khan, was a great tabla player. And so Pranish played tabla, and I played harmonica. <laughs> I wasn't good enough on tabla yet. And I played percussion, and I don't know what I did to keep look like I was keeping busy up there. And so I found myself going and hanging out with Ashish a lot. Like after rehearsal, he would invite me. At that time, he was living with his father, Ali Akbar Khan, who was my vocal teacher, but he's got 100, 150 students. I'm just another new student, you know, and... I'd sit right in front of him and sing my heart out, and so he, he recognized me, but we didn't really talk. And as I said before, Ali Akbar Khan was a man of music. He wasn't a man of words. So he didn't, you know, engage you with charming conversation all the time. He hung out, and you just kind of were in his aura. Mm. This thick, wonderful, emotional aura of God knows what was swirling in his heart and body and mind musically and so I'm over there one night and everybody's out of the living room and, and it's just me and Ali Akbar Khan and he looks at me over his scotch now I mentioned scotch and I'm going to only say it once he only drank after he performed or after he taught mm. and it helped him to come back down mm. Because when he taught and performed, he would go off into the God knows where. Mm. Especially after a music concert where he gave thousand percent of remembering and being involved in the music. I mean, sometimes he would, I, I would lead him, I would always carry the sarod and he, I'd give him my tambura, I had smaller tambura even than that. And he would follow, I'd have to make sure he found the dressing room because he was not on this planet after he finished concerts. Hmm. And I'd get him into the dressing room, I'd put the sarod down and clean it up a little. He might clean it up a little and we'd put it back in the case and close it up. And Sometimes I could see his eyeballs dilate. Mm -hmm. 
And he'd look around and go, oh, we're back in the dressing room. Mm. <laughs> you wow. know, like, whoa, he's finally with us. I think one time in the in the Sydney Opera House, the dressing room was so far away from the stage, and we lost one of his plectrums, and it was always my job to gather all the plectrums and put away his stuff. He had a little box, you know, with his father's picture on it and had all his paraphernalia for playing Sarud, and I'd have to make sure it was all there before I left the stage, and mm. we were missing one. One, two, three, four, oh, there's... Six, where's the seventh? He left without me, and I couldn't find him. Mm-hmm. And he was lost. <laughs> and I finally found him walking around. Wow. <laughs> anyway, how did I get on that? So back at the college, after class, we would go back to the house. So I'm talking about how I first started to work for him. So I'm there with... I, because Ashish is inviting me back. Later, of course, I worked out of the house and was there every day. So Ashish invites me. Ali Akbar's drinking his scotch, and while it's up at his lips, he looks over the rim and he says, maybe you're the one. And his adorable Bengali accent. I, I'm not going to try and imitate it. And I'm like, what? You know, sitting there on the couch next near him he's in his chair and he gets up and he shuffles over to a filing cabinet pulls it out pulls out a big file thick file hands it to me says this man owes me money so open it up it's a record con it's a record company it's all letters from the owner of the record label sending him the royalty statement but no check mm. and no explanation why no check for 10, 15 years. So I said, well, can I take this home? And I took it home and I added it up as in 19, these albums were recorded. There was about 20000 $25,000, which was a lot of money in 1975, 76, 77. No, this is 77 or 6. And... Connoisseur Records in New York City in the 50s and 60s was a specialized label of Western classical music. And the man who ran it fell in love with Indian music and Ali Akbar Khan. And he got Kansab to do 15 albums with a special Ampeg. In those days, the state of the art was a three-track Ampeg tape recorder. And they took one track out and made it stereo, half-inch, one-inch tape, half-inch each musician, tabla, sarod, mm. at 30 IPS, best technically recorded Indian classical music ever. Nobody ever recorded like that. 15 albums. Released about 10 or 12 of them. I called him up the next day. He starts crying on the phone. He had never answered any of the letters. Why aren't you paying me? Nobody called him. He's crying on the phone to a 22-year-old kid. I'll do whatever you want. I love Kansab. I did not tell him that the IRS, that I went bankrupt and the IRS seized all the money. 
So all I could think of was to send the check. I mean, send the statement. At least he knew. I'll do anything. And me, this bright-ass little kid. We want the masters, and we want the copyrights. Anything! I said, I'm coming to New York in a couple of months to pick them up. My mother lived in New York. So I went. Some things are just scary. Right before I left, Chitrish's younger brother, who was also a double player for Cuttack, showed up in California with a trunk made in India. And I traded him my tubla case for the trunk, and I took it to New York. And these masters, 30 IPS, were this big, each one, right? Mm. One-inch masters. Big. They slid into the trunk, all 15, mm. without any room left over. Gives mm. me goofbumps, mm. still thinking about it. Closed the top, flew home, knocked on his door. I cry if I think about it. He couldn't believe it. So I was the one. Mm. So he kept giving me more things to do. Because I, I was a student. I wasn't a professional manager. And so then I started booking, and then I started... And then he would take me with him. And um, we used to tour Europe every winter. And then he would go to India, and I would tour with um, Ken Zuckerman, who great Sirode player in Basel, Switzerland, has the Ali Akbar College of Music in Basel, and we would go off. First, I would travel with Ali Akbar and Zakir and do the whole circuit that I would have booked and play tambour for them. And one night, I didn't do the last gig. They went back to England, and the, I heard from when I saw them next that the tambour player, an Indian man, passed out while he was playing, fell backwards off the stage. Zakir saw him fall back, and as he's playing, he stopped, he kept playing and grabbed the tambura. An Indian man in the front row came around, took the tambura, kept playing. Oh my God. Zakir went back to playing, and Ali Akbar never stopped, never even looked up. Wow. That's the way Zakir told me. I don't know. Wow. The guy blissed out. He came to in the dressing room five minutes later. Where am I? <laughs> so after that, they made sure they took me almost everywhere <laughs> with them. So that was really fun to get to play on stage with Zakir, my knee touching Zakir's butt and Ali Akbar's butt, mm. and watching Zakir and Ali Akbar and playing tambura. Now, tambura, we're going to have a whole other thing with it, but it's very easy to play. Except that when you're accompanying someone, you need to know how they want to hear it. And so, you know, I was really tuned into Ali Akbar's ear and a little wince. And maybe I'm too loud, I have to play soft, you know. If I didn't understand, he'd kind of, if I still didn't get it, he'd actually turn around and softer, he'd whisper to me, you know. And like that, I got I got to watch how these guys would play together and... You know, maybe they'd argue in the dressing room, and I'd go up to Zark, and then when one would leave, I'd say, what, what was that all about? <laughs> oh, well, 
Zakir, he introduced triplets before I did. You know, you're not supposed to do. He's supposed to wait until the road player introduced. You know, stuff like that. It was fun, and they would make me play tambura. Remember the tambura. So I'm playing the tambura, but then they want me to keep. Remember, I showed you the clapping and the waving, and how there's each rhythmic cycle. They would also ask me to do that, especially in India, because they would have a hard time with Indian press because they would always be angry that why are you teaching Westerners in, in mm. not Indians? Mm. So they needed to show the Indian audiences in India that I understood what was going on. Keeping the tall was very important for them to show that. Um, fortunately, now the Ali Akbar College, in my day, there was one or two Indians mm. for for decade for a decade or more. But in the last several decades, it's all Indians, mostly Indians, lots of Indians who find the parents have finally sent their kids to this wonderful conservatory. Mm. So most people study Indian music. You go to your teacher's house and it's just you and the teacher and you don't necessarily meet very many other students. Maybe you go to a concert and you meet a few. And the Ali Akbar College was so wonderful. Ali Akbar Khan came to Berkeley in 65 at the behest of the scripts to teach at their Center for Southeast Asian Studies, which they brought um, people from different cultures. They had a gamelan, they had North Indian, South Indian classical, and for a couple of years, 65, 66. And then in 67, Ali Akbar Khan had so many students that his students said, let's open our own school for you. We don't need to be involved with all that. It's kind of confusing. So they opened the Ali Akbar College of Music, I think 67, and they moved over to Marin County from Berkeley. And it was a conservatory. So he brought both a tabla player as, as his accompanist. In those days, it was Shankar Ghosh at first, teaching at the college. And um, he brought G.S. Sachdev, the Greek classical flautist, bamboo flute, who I later got to accompany and become good friends with. And... Um, Later, he brought Chichish Das, the Katak master, and over the years, he brought many different Indians to come and teach. Tabla-wise, I think Zakir started um, a year before I got there or a half year before I got there. Mm. Shankar Ghosh stayed in Kolkata. Zakir was brought in. He had been, this is um, 74, and... Um, then I came in 75. So Zakir and I, because we lived across the street from each other, I got to spend extra time with him coming and going. The 15-minute drive, 10-minute drive to class, mm. um, sometimes longer. And then when I started helping Ali Akbar Khan, Zakir is not only just a monster musician, he's also his own manager, or he has been. Mm. Um, you know, he has, he has help and he has other managers now. But in those days, he really was the guy who knew what was going on with who was going to book where all around the world. Mm. So he essentially gave me my first contacts that I booked for Ali Akbar Khan and Zakir mm. in Europe. And so we would, you know, Zakir kind of taught me the ropes, including saving my life in London when I stepped off just started to step off a curb and mm. a taxi was coming the other direction. No. 
And he pulled me back. If I had taken that step, no more me. Mm -hmm. It happened really fast. Thank you, Zakir. <laughs> so he was there for several years, and Shanti, Shakti was going on with John McLaughlin. And so he was gone a lot. And luckily, a lot of those times, his father, Alaraka, would be have downtime from touring with Ravi Shankar. And so Alaraka would come and take Zakir's place. So that's how I got to start studying with Alaraka. Mm. Uh, later, I did a lot of work with, with Ravi Shankar and in both the Jugabandis and just Ravi Sh with Ali Akbar and without him, just Ravi Shankar and in India. And I got to spend a lot of time with Alaraka. And that was great. Wow. What were some of the differences between studying with Zakir and his father? Well, Alaraka was more like Ali Akbar Khan, all music. They weren't going to sit, sit around and kind of have an erudite, sophisticated, intellectual conversation with you, you know. They'd like, you know, they'd like to hear about other students' lives and juicy stuff sometimes and talk about music a lot and, you know, but just they weren't there to talk. Mm. <laughs> so on that level, they were the same. Where Zakir was like, you know, almost grew up Western, mm. which is another reason why he was so good at accompanying Westerners because he grew up listening to Western music. Mm -hmm. He grew up understanding Westerners. And... Um, Alaraka had all this really great traditional stuff in the Punjabi Gurana, and there were like six main schools of tabla, and he studied with Kadir Bucks, who was a um, way older, next generation back, um, and really taught the traditional stuff. And Zakir would take that stuff and he learned it all, and then he would soup it up. So there's one great kaida. Uh, Alaraka would teach it like this. Um, it's a kaida rela, fast and kaida poetic stuff. So the second half of it, Zakir would take the dati daga dinagena dati dinagena, and he would turn it into dati dagena dinagena dati dagena daga dinagena. Just like whoa! So Zakir would sound to put them together. Dati dati dagena dinagena dati dagena daga dinagena dati dagena daga dinagena. Alaraka, da di 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 He's not doing it up here as much as it's just coming out of him because it's just all natural progressions from the stuff that you're getting. It's like for us talking. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk rhythm. So let's, let's back up. So Zakir, 
eventually, Ali Akbar Khan was like a little frustrated. Sakir's always gone. He's always with McLaughlin. So they parted amicably for the, for the college. And, but Zakir, most of the time, kept playing tours with Ali Akbar Khan, even though he wasn't teaching anymore at the college. And he brought, Ali Akbar Khan brought an, someone of Zakir's father's generation, the great Gyan Prakash Ghosh, also from Kolkata. Wonderful man. Not only a master tuba player who was fairly wealthy as when he start, studied that he actually was the first person to go around to all the mm. major schools of tabla and, and actually t- pay the masters of those schools to teach him. So he mm. studied all the different styles and, and passed a lot of that on to me. I'm not, you know, a master to be able to show you the different styles, but um, the very minute little things. Mm. And he had a huge volume of literature, just beautiful stuff, stuff that no one ever would, else would teach me. Like most balls are dati da or tete dete, terikitata, terikitataka, dinigina, darigina. He had like a dance ball, tangara, dingara, didi, kitataka, dingara, kitataka, terikitatangara, tanga. Just it's beautiful. We'll do that in, in another session. Tangra, dingra, didi, kitulik, dingra, kitulik, dingra, tangra, tangra, dingra, tangra. And he had this wonderful Bengali accent. Mm. I loved him. So he also composed bhajan, and he married a singer. So he was composing bhajan for his wife to concertize and sing bhajan. And he, they would teach it together, and she would sing and play harmonium, and their nephew or sometimes me would play tabla. And my tabla teacher, Gyan Prakashkosh, would sit there with the tambora, and she would be teaching it, and we'd be singing it back, and he'd kind of be playing, and gradually his fingers would stop, and she'd pump the harmonium a little harder, and he'd <laughs> he'd wake up. <laughs> for me it was just heaven it was total heaven so he was there for two and a half years all kinds of great music and great compositions wonderful compositions I was finally in, at intermediate level Zakir's stuff was just so hard sometimes and I was loving it but here came this guy with all these other kinds of strange compositions that I really loved Stuff like that, just wonderful stuff. And then, you know, all this time I'm I'm working now with Ali Akbar Khan and we're touring with Zakir. And touring meant in between the nine-week semesters. So mostly we only got to, to do concertizing in the two and a half weeks in between, three weeks in between, except for the wintertime. At the end of November, we had two and a half months. And he would usually go to India for most of that time, but on the way there... 
I would book him and we'd do a lot of concertizing. And, you know, we played all the greatest places. Sydney Opera House, um, Carnegie Hall with Ravi Shankar many times, four times. And in India, in Europe, um, uh, the Odeon Opera House, which was this falling apart ancient opera house in Paris. Mm. We also played in the big state concert hall in Paris, um, Berlin Philharmonic Hall, just incredible stuff. And uh, that first tour with Raviji, well, I mean, with Kansab, I wasn't, I had already booked a, a a flight to to Europe and I wasn't really his manager yet or booking yet I helped book but he wasn't taking me with him and then he understood that my wife lived in Europe and that I was going anyway mm. and I had produced the first cassette for him um, live in San Francisco and that was my big debut and he said well why don't you bring all the cassettes to sell and you keep all that money to pay for your expenses I went oh and and you get yourself there. So I got a URL pass, and I took the train while he and Zakir flew. And I would meet them at the airports. I would I, They'd go to the hotel after the gig. I'd get on an all-night train and get to the next city and get out to the airport and meet them when they got off the plane. Mm. That was so cool. And then bring the cassettes to the gigs and stuff. I wasn't always playing tambura yet. Sometimes I'd, I'd uh, sell the cassettes out front. Sometimes I'd play tambourine, right? That was the first tour, yeah. Mm. So many memories back there, I don't even remember. So in 82 or 3, we went to India. Ali Akbar took me to India with Raviji. And we were booked at, a, at five or six Jugabandis with Zakir. The Carnegie Hall gigs were also all with Zakir. That means two tabla players, Zakir and his father, Alaraka, mm. Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar Khan. It's like a legendary mm. in Indian classical music. So in India, we booked all these huge monster stadiums, Netaji Stadium in Calcutta, monster halls, outdoor music festivals, Ravi Shankar's music festival in Banaras, and they would play at midnight to 6 a.m. to sun, sunrise. And they would never get off the stage. And they'd take a break at three hours and chai would be brought out to the stage. And they would just sit there, have chai. The audience would get up and kind of watch them have chai. And, you know, we'd get up, stretch our legs, go to the bathroom, whatever. And then they would start again. I'd be playing tambura for six friggin' hours. Wow. Why would they start so late? Because it's a music festival. They go all night long, mm. and they were the headliners. So all the other artists would go on, and then when they were all done, then... Mm -hmm. In India, at the music festivals, there's no time limits, so even the other artists could play as long as they want. Mm. Crazy. Well, I'm sure when, when you got the greats coming on, and right. they're not going to play off. that late, yeah. 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 So the music festivals in the wintertime in India, the classical music festivals, usually go a couple of nights, three, four nights, and they go all night long, and everybody goes and takes a nap in the morning after the last act, which could be at six in the morning, 
Could be three in the morning, could be two at night, two in the morning, could be 10 in the morning, seven, you know, nine in the morning, you know, go home, get some food, get some sleep, come back in the late afternoon, early evening and start all over again. Mm. And, uh, and is that so that like people could work during the day or something like that? So more people could no, come? No, because people had just, to sleep. Yeah. And the music would go all night. Uh-huh. It was allowed to, whether it did or not, depend on the individual artist. But yeah, many as many as a night in India with Ali Akbar Khan, we'd go over to another great musician's house who happened to live in that town and sit and have dinner at 7 o'clock knowing we were on at midnight. Mm-hmm. Or, or someone was going to call us and say, well, you better get here because so-and-so's halfway done. Mm-hmm. And like that. And it would be 11 at night, 10 at night. And um, so there's some great, great stories in India. But the one I want to tell you is, so the ancestral home where Ali Akbar Khan and Ravi Shankar both studied with Ali Akbar's father, Alauddin Khan, and Ravi Shankar married Alauddin's daughter, Ali Akbar's sister, Annapurna, and they all studied, had a has, still does, a yearly festival in honor of Alauddin Khan. Hmm. I believe it's on his birthday. It could be on his passing. And the the old sandstone hacienda house, which had a big courtyard in the middle and little sandstone rooms all around it, still is there. And right next to it is a massive field. And the, the Bhopal government puts on this massive festival. But there's no city near here. So most of these people don't even understand Indian classical music. Mm. You know, I mean, these are just the folks in the countryside coming. 10,000 of them. It's amazing. You know, there's a lot of bigger middle class now than when I was there. I'm talking 1982, winter into 83. So we play a big gig in, in Mumbai, and we all get on the train to go to the middle of India, to Maihar, which is not too far from... Jabalpur in Madhya Pradesh, and that's the ancestral home. We get on the train in, in Mumbai, and there's in one train car four bunk beds, two bunk beds. I mean, bottom bunk, top, I'm sorry, top bunk is Ashish Khan, and underneath is his dad, Ali Akbar. Other bunk bed, top bunk is Zakir, underneath is uh, Alaraka. Hmm. And I was in the next car with, with another student. Ravi Shankar was in the next car with uh, whoever he was with. I remember I just went and sat on the floor in their car. (laughs) Big smile on my face. Just like, I could sit here all night, (laughs) you know, because it was an all-night train. I love that. So in Maihar, the morning of his celebration, Ali Akbar Khan woke me up at four in the morning. In, in my bed, he shakes me awake. He says, put, go take a bath and put on your best kurta and meet me in my room, which is just across this open courtyard. And take a bath at this place at four in the morning meant a cold bucket was waiting for me. I go over, I walk into his room. He's waiting for me. 
hands me his Sirota, points at a Sirota, I grab the Sirota. He picks up the tambura. He's already tuned it for me. Normally, in our situation, I would sit there with him and play the tambura for him while he tuned. But it was just too early in the morning. I follow him outside, out the main door of the courtyard. And he goes around to the front of the house to this little funky mausoleum that Aladdin Khan is buried in. And it's just this like gazebo, green, looks like a garden shed. But in the middle is only a raised sarcophagus with the tomb. And you can just barely walk all the way around it. That's the whole structure. Mm. And, he, and the door is propped open, dark out, and sitting in the dirt is Ravi Shankar with his sitar. Behind him is Alaraka with no tabla. Behind him is Ashish Khan, because it's narrow, mm. very narrow, so they have to be behind each other. And Ravi Shankar is sitting facing the door waiting for us. And so I scoot in, and Ali Akbar sits in right at the door in at the head of his father's coffin, and I'm behind them playing tambura, and these two are facing each other, and we're lined up behind them. And they're playing to the father. Mm. Now, I had done a lot of, quite a few, you know, a few duets with, with them. And almost every time... We would meet either in the hotel or in India at Ali Akbar's house or in Banaras at Ravi Shankar's house, just the two of them and me. And I, they'd tune up the tumble. Well, first they'd argue where they're going to pitch because Sitar's a little higher than Sarud, and then neither of them wanted to meet the other, so they'd argue in Hindi or whatever, and I don't know. They'd hand me the tumble, or I'd play it, and they would tune up. And it was so gorgeous. They would close each other's eyes, and they would just kind of, one would play a line, and the other would finish it. And they were remembering compositions that Aladdin taught mm. them. So there'd be an araga. So I never totally explained that araga is a certain literature that a scale is one part of, the, the emotions are part of. But you get lots of compositions in that raga. And each composition shows you how you can move in that raga. So one might play a line from one composition, the other might play a line from another composition, or he might finish the line of that composition. Mm. And then they'd both light up and look at each other and see if they both remembered it. You know, mm. just this amazing remembrance. Mm. But now here they are, instead of preparing for a concert, they're playing to him. For about, I don't, I actually couldn't tell you how long they played. Mm. I don't want to like make up some number. I don't know, but it was a while. And even all Iraqis just, mm. you know, for the old man. And that night we played next door, you know, in this massive field with like ten thousand people, and they start at midnight, and I see the sun coming up behind the audience. Now, ragas are also geared to certain times of days. 
and, and they move in a progression. So if they're going to start, if someone's going to go on before them at the beginning of the evening, they're going to play what's called a, 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 a late afternoon or an early evening raga. And then maybe if they play another one, they're going to play one that falls in succession, and everybody knows what the succession is, to the next time of day. Uh, evening rock, mid-evening, late evening rock, and then late night rock. So these guys would come on at late night time, and they would play. And at some point, if you wanted to, if you weren't, let's say you were at a regular concert that's supposed to end because the hall's only rented to 11 o'clock, you could go in progression and play a late night rock and an early morning rock, and it's tradition to play Bhairavi, which is a morning rock, at the end of your concert, which is signaling, I'm done. Mm. I'm not playing morning rock. I can't play anymore, you know. Well, if they made you, you'd have to play something that came after it, a later morning rock. So these guys would go on at midnight, but without fail, they would play that late morning, that early morning raga. You know, they'd see the sun come up, and one of them might just tear into it. I mean, you've you got to understand. I mean, you've seen Ravi Shankar. I, many of you probably not seen Ali Akbar Khan. Ali Akbar Khan is like the instrument itself with a, with a string, with a skin under the string, has a very loud pop when he hits the string with the plectrum, a coconut pick. And it's a very masculine instrument, whereas the star is the feminine version. So the two instruments are made to play together. Even though classical music is a solo art form with a drummer. Hmm. And it's difficult to play with just anybody, like from a different family, because you didn't grow up together hearing, studying the same compositions. So what they're playing is totally foreign. You're not able to build off each other in the same way you would if it was someone who you studied with, like Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar studied together. Hmm. And so those sessions were really just these incredible. So like for concerts, they'd work out five or six ragas that they might, with compositions that they both remember. And then the next night at the gig, they might only play three or four of those. But they worked up a whole bunch that they might play. And so then they're really, it's like battleships. Because Indian classical music as a solo art form you're actually, in a way, you, a great tuba player is doing battle with you. But you're on the same team. But you're shaking each other up. Like, here's the rhythm guy. Yeah, I hear what you're playing, you know, and you want to give them the right accents and the right ornaments that heighten what they do and inspire them to do even more. And similarly, you know, they crank it out and they play that phrase three times, the tihai, you know, and you see that ending come, you might jump on the ending with them and you're, bam! I mean, it's like a shot to the draw. There's a lot of heroicness mm. and fierceness in this music when it wants to be. And then it's the most beautiful baby nursery rhyme you can imagine. You know, it and everything in between. And all these structures to call on. Well, I know this rhythm is a little more heroic. Let's do a light rhythm. I feel like we did that heavy rhythm in, at the beginning of the concert. All right, light rhythm. Now a light melody. I don't know if you I feel, I feel like candy. Here's a rock that actually has more than just the seven notes. It adds a couple of the incidentals that you don't usually hear. You know, so oh, yeah, I can go to places 
you know, it's a lighter feel, more romantic. Or, no, I'm going to play something, you know. Or, no, I'm going to play something really sad. I've seen Ali Akbar Khan make audiences cry. Mm. Just cry. Even, even like, I remember in Rome, we played in Teatro de Argentine, which is like, is like the Odeon in Paris, ancient opera house. Like, like the Odeon in Paris, ancient People were just in tears. The Italians, you know, they feel the music from a deeper place. Whereas in Germany, I remember Alec Brakan turning around in the middle of the concert and saying, do they like it? They're not, they're not doing anything. And the Germans were like meditating on it. Mm-hmm. And when it was over, they went berserk. <laughs> but in India, people give you... They say they yell at while you're playing. There's it's it's like part of the music to go yeah you know like a jazz gig or something. Mm. And it just I remember Italy. They they were just really going for it. So after you know these tours kept going on and on. It was great and um, Ali Akbar Khan would occasionally agree to do fusion. Unheard of for a man of his classical stature. Ravi Shankar grew up playing in a, in a dance orchestra. So if you listen to his music that he composes, I- instrumental music, you can really envision these beautiful dances going on and, you know, different moods for the dancers, right? Ali Akbar Khan could compose lighter stuff like that, but he was so grounded in the classical tradition. So it was like, how is he going to play with John Andy on saxophone? And they did. I saw them many times play together. Mm. And then they started a band with John Handy and Bolo Sete, who was a great Brazilian guitarist who passed away, and El Subramaniam, who was El Shankar's brother, South Indian violinist, just as good, amazing, and Zakir. Am I forgetting anybody? They had an incarnation of it that had a trap drummer and a jazz a jazz trap drummer and a jazz bass player who came with John Handy. That was really fun to hear. Do you but remember the name of those bands? Well, it was called Rainbow, and I believe even the addition of the of the bassist and trap drummer was in Rainbow. That was called Rainbow, and there was an album, and it was released in Germany, and I couldn't tell you what label. But with, with those players. So I'm bringing this up to say that it's not impossible to play fusion music. But when you're a classical Indian artist, fusion music is less than the tip of your pinky in terms of what you have to use as your musical expression. So it's not something you're going to run to do. And when we get to the Kirtan session, you know, we'll talk more about this, but Kirtan is really folk music. And I just want to point out that in the beginning of my Kirtan years, both here in Hawaii where I played Kirtan for 15 years without ever being paid, without a sound system, and never a concert and never in a yoga studio. It was just our family of friends, 15 to 100 people sometimes, 
smaller gatherings of 15, 20 people in a living room on the beach doing kirtan from our hearts just for each other, taking turns leading. There was no one leader. Everybody got to lead who wanted to lead. And you reach a point where kirtan started to be played by so many Westerners around 2000's beginning, lots of people and playing in yoga studios for money, and they're bringing rock and roll and Western instruments into it all of a sudden. And that's okay, but again, it's just the little piece of the pinky. The strumming of the guitar is a rhythm. Limits what the tuba player is doing. When you're playing traditionally with just a harmonium, I'm the rhythm section. I'm playing bass, mm -hmm. guitar, I'm playing the, the, the trap set. But the minute you put a bass guitar in there, I'm, you can't even hear this. Number one, it's very hard to mic up. Number two, they're in the same octave and they're covering each other. And you got a trap drummer playing in a lot of these sounds. Mm -hmm. So the only thing you end up hearing maybe is this ring of the na that doesn't actually make much sense. So for, for me, playing with bands was a big challenge. Mm. But I did it because so many of my friends, that's what they wanted to do, right? rock and roll bands. And... Um, so bringing classical music into Western kirtan and Western fusion music, that's a statement I had to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're someone who meets a double player and they don't, they're not enthusiastic, might be the reason why. <laughs> um, if they're super enthusiastic, they may not be a very good double player. <laughs> and... I will take this opportunity to clarify that I grew up hearing uh, uh, the Ishkan Hare Krishnas on the streets playing South Indian Murdangams and singing uh, Kirtan, and I loved it, and I used to go to the temples to be enmeshed in the music. Um, I, didn't, I never joined up. I mean, I, I, for me, I'm such a, a renegade that part of it was really hard to submit to this, all that, even though I, I, I embraced the spirituality of Krishna. Um, but the classical music is like Western classical music. It's like you need to have a teacher who shows you how to practice. Kirtan didn't show you how to practice. They just wanted you to learn the songs. Mm -hmm. And maybe you learned how to do Murdungam. Somebody would show you a few things, but there's not a lot of literature there. It's just basic stuff on the drum. And then harmonium, yeah. Now, not to say that Ishkan didn't have some great musicians, because they had some sublime, wonderful, wonderful uh, singers who were accomplished musicians in classical music and knew what they were doing. But the classical music required this discipline of practice. And a lot of people, a lot of young people were not ready to do that, submit, or have that kind of motivation. 
And I explained before that the college had a conservatory, and I never explained that. The beauty of the conservatory was it was a whole bunch of people all doing what you were doing, and you could go to anybody's house after class and practice together. And I would get up at four in the morning, and I, my room, my, uh, um, my housemate, she was a singer, we would meet in the living room at four in the morning and sing our scales, like, like I showed you, try and do an hour or two hours. Then I'd do an hour or two hours of tabla. wasn't even enough. Then I'd go to a job, and then I'd go to class in the afternoon and evening, and then after that I would go to one of my friend's house and pretend that I could play tabla. Right. <laughs> and they would pretend that they could play sitar. <laughs> and we were putting these fragments that we could replay, or these compositions, and play it together and, and slowly work out this stuff. And there were always, if that guy didn't like the way you played, there was always somebody else you could play with. Right. Or you didn't like that guy, there was always someone else. And like that, we got better and better. And so there was a lot of practice of your lesson and a lot of practice of the structure of how to play teka, whatever the rhythmic cycle is. So as a very, very beginning tuple player, once you can play the notes... The, the basic strokes, you can play teka because it's not that hard. And then that means you can, you can keep the rhythm for the beginning sitar player while he tries to play the composition he just learned in class mm -hmm. that he's having a hard time with. And then, you know, maybe for God's sake, he turned on his tape recorder or maybe there was an older student in the next room. Oh, would you come and show us how that worked, you know? So there's always somebody around to help you. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing and probably a good reason to study in India too if you can find... Good teachers, Varanasi is one of the better places to go. So this is a dichotomy that always existed. While when I went to classical music, I didn't have anything to do with kirtan. I stopped that completely. And I was just getting started with it anyway. I was a baby. And um, when I left and came to Hawaii, when I left Al Akbar Khan and moved to Hawaii, I found all these, like I said, you know, 100 people who would show up for Kirtan in 1985, 86, 150 people, and no organization, just a lot of renegades who had lived in India and studied with different gurus and learned different Kirtans and brought them back. And some of them were good singers and some of them weren't, but they were great kirtan leaders. Mm. So you had all these people who were really folky. So I had to put aside my classicism mm. and just just go, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, I, I played a lot of tabla with them, but there was a lot of kirtan going on on the beach and somebody put a dumbek, Middle Eastern dumbek in my hand. And I went, wow, I could take this to the beach because Tubler just didn't work. And then I had a friend, and he showed me basic strokes, doom, tech, and ka. And I just put it together, doom. And I learned the basic doom, tech, tech, doom, tech, doom, tech. And I started playing for Kirtan on the beach. And I could sing because I learned how to do it accompanying Ali Akbar Khan just by chance. 
So I understood that these people did not understand Tubla. They didn't care for Tubla, even though they loved to look at it. They didn't know what they were hearing. Mm. So I could play Doombeck too. <laughs> and some of them are rain- waterproof. I play them in the rain. Right. Play them in the water. So I, I ended up having a great run with Doombeck, and I still use it for Kirtan sometimes when I don't have a mic because Tubla's too soft in the rock and roll bands. It's a little bit louder. Plus, it's a finger drum. So I'm not like djembe and kungas, you're using your arms. Mm-hmm. But with dumbek and tabla, it's just your fingers more or less. Right? So it's better transition. So you have a situation where if you study classical music, it's going to improve your musicianship overall. And so nowadays when I teach a lot of people, they don't want to learn classical tabla. They want to learn for kirtan, simple 4-4 four, four beat rhythm or 6 beat rhythm, 8s and 6s. But I tell them, look, you've got to learn some basic classical stuff because that's where you're going to learn, your fingers are going to learn how to move correctly. And then you just concentrate on this lighter stuff mm. after you get the finger work correct with mostly classical stuff. So... This dichotomy still exists. Most people do not understand how complicated and deep classical Indian music is. They just have no idea. So when they ask a tuple player to come and play with them, they don't get that there's this whole literature and all amazing science of rhythm and melody. They just want to have that cool-looking drum they saw that other kirtan band have. And you can't even hear the tuple player because the bass and trap drummer are super loud. Right. So, just for all you folks, I just wanted you all to know what a tuple player does. It's <laughs> capable of. Just thinking of a nice way to, you know, potentially wrap this up. Do you have a particular story of Ali Akbar Khan, you know, that you know, really represents that kind of uh, guru-disciple relationship? Um, or well, one thing that was really beautiful was when I worked for him, you know, as I'm, every day I'm checking in with him when I'm working for him to book future gigs. I was producing recordings. Um driving him around. He was a horrible driver. Um, If I didn't make it to his house to do some work, whatever it was that day, because he would always make sure I was fed. So if I missed lunch and somebody at the house was coming over, there was always somebody coming to the college a couple miles away, he would make me Tupperware Hmm. container to make sure. Mm. that I was fed. And, you know, I didn't get paid a lot of money. I never asked for money. It was, for me, it was my dream to to have an apprentice situation. And here I was, and I just needed to immerse myself in it. And if immersing myself in it meant helping him take care of his business because nobody else was doing it. For some reason, his, his older students 
stuck to the music, you know. There's reasons for that. And nobody was filling that void in his business of performing and recording. And he was only doing that in India. And his Indian secretary would take care of that stuff. But at the college, only occasionally would gigs come through or something. So when when I got those masters for him and started looking, you know, seeing what else I could do for him, the first thing was book more gigs and, and the right gigs. And mm. So being there and being a part of him, you know, He, he used to come to school not only on time to teach his classes, he would turn the school clock forward five minutes. And then he would get there and watch everybody come in. <laughs> oh, you're late. Oh, you're late. He was a jokester. Hmm. He liked to tell jokes. So when he's teaching, he's like fierce. Or not fierce as much as just so deep into his memories and musicalities that make up whatever that rag and rhythm is. While he's teaching, his eyes are closed most of the time. But when he's done, he's exhausted, lights up a cigarette, and the, the class is playing back. And then he'll crack a joke. Mm about how bad they sound. <laughs> and he'll laugh. <laughs> and then he might tell some more dirty jokes or, or music jokes about how bad they sound. And he'll laugh some more. <laughs> he stopped smoking. But in the days I was there, he smoked. And if, when I was accompanying him, I'd be, you know, this close to him on, the, on his side. And if I made a mistake on an inhale of a cigarette, <sighs> <laughs> I'd suffer the consequences <laughs> so I'd try not to make a mistake while I was accompanying him so you know there was just such a, a love of all his students for him and we treated him in the old India way we touched his feet when he arrived or if he was already sitting you know his knee but when he got up at the end he would stand or sit at the edge of the stage where we could reach his feet and everybody would just touch his feet and you know to me that meant you know I'll never even reach the level of your feet you're so wonderful mm. thank you for taking me on as a student and I love you it's just great mm. you're the man <laughs> mm. you know I, mean, I know it looks so funny when you see it in an Indian movie or something but that's what in India that's very common you do it to your father even you know and your father could be your guru so and it's beautiful when you feel that love that drives you to that action. You yes, know? and we would all when line it's real. up. Yeah, we would yeah. all line up. Just about everybody would do it. Yeah, and even when I came back to visit, you know, wait for the students to do it, and and he might talk to you. You step aside. He might ask you a few questions. But he was a very quiet man, and he taught for two hours, and then he took a tea break. And I used to make the tea. My secret for how much cream to put in was match the color of his skin. It this mm. wonderful brown. Bengali skin that mm. I loved and I just a little more you know mm. a little less mm. and uh, he would take a 15 minute break 10 minute break drink his tea students would come in everybody was petrified of him mm. his students were petrified of him because they had to sit there in front of him and he was going to chew him out if they didn't sound good he, he wouldn't 
always he wasn't so bad but in general he could make some comments yeah but he would you know if he got really pissed he'd go, he'd go one at a time and then you shouldn't you, you did you drop your pants man You're like, <laughs> oh my god and every single one no next no next no nobody could do it and then he'd pick up his sarod and he'd go and everybody knew exactly what he was trying to show them. Mm. But they, you know, it's just amazing to be taught some music musically, mm. not all written. I mean, we wrote it. That's an American invention. One of the great things that George Ruckert and some of the older students did was create this westernized version of written notation that's super easy, much easier than Western notation for music for Indian notation. Using sargam, you write sarega, S-R-G. And the, we'll go in, into it in another one, but the rhythms are just a line is a beat, and whatever amount of letters are above, that's how many microbeats per mm. beat. Mm -hmm. So it could be sare, those are half notes, the beat. Sare, triplet. Sa de ga, sa de ga, three inside the beat, four, sa de ga ma, taka dimi, quarter notes. So it's really a simple notation. Mm. And um, somebody for the beginners would write it on a big blackboard so the beginners could have something to write home and take. For me, I always recorded it or tried to learn it by heart. I, I get the notes, I have the notes, but it's really something you want to learn by heart. Mm. And that was most important to everybody, including him. He didn't like people reading their notes when they were playing it. Noted. Yeah. And it was hard work. Two hours, you're exhausted. And then you might have 15-minute break and another two hours of a vocal class. <sighs> you know, and going to make coffee and... And then you got to go, you know, like we said, practice, 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 or go fool around with somebody, some of your friends. Yeah. And get up early the next morning and do it all over again. And, you know, there were some trust funders who didn't have to work and they would practice more. And then there were other people that took every kind of job you can imagine to, so that they could work. One of my best friends was a heavy duty construction worker. Can't sit. Well, we're all getting to that point where it's hard for us to sit cross legged. And, um, had hip, hip replacement. When you're playing the sarod, that's a very difficult instrument. So he now has to play in a chair. So, you know, working, people worked hard and were devoted. And uh, it was like on a parallel track with kirtan, but it was a different kind of sadhana. Mm. You're not singing kirtan and feeding people. You're practicing and trying to keep yourself fed <laughs> as best you can. And the, the students, another wonderful thing at the conservatory, all the students, there were people, Montino Bourbon, one of the older students, would have all-nighters. My first year, I go over to this guy's house, and at four in the afternoon, somebody's playing a raga with a double player in a practice room out in the yard, little little room, little hut. And then an hour later in the living room, somebody starts playing a, a late afternoon rag 
with a different tuble player and it's a different musician and the guy the first guy's still playing out in the yard mm. the other guy's in the house and then in the bedroom an hour later somebody starts a later midnight a later evening rock mm. four different rocks at the same time from different time frames mm. when the, when the first guy finished somebody else would come in there and play whatever the late night guy was here he'd have to play something later mm. and we would go all night like that and all the tuba players at the school would get a chance. I was too young in those days. Later, I got to play a few all-nighters. But mm. those, when I was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, know-nothing kid, I was like, wow, what mm. is this life? These people are playing all night long. Because when I played Western music before Indian music, before I knew what Indian music was, I was in a rock and roll band. I was in a folk, folky rock jazz band. And... We always we were always looking for something more, and Ramdas came out with "Be Here Now." There was a, we knew there was more out there than what we and our white bread middle class upbringings had been exposed to, but we it wasn't out there. We had to look for it, mm. and you know we all knew that we weren't happy with where we were, and and just how blasé it all felt. And so whether it was pure spiritual teachers or musical teachers or all the things that the counterculture developed at that time, this little nugget was like Lindisfarne of a classical, you know, like a monastery saving texts text throughout the Middle Ages. You know, I mean, here was this school of music with this guy that had more information in him that he needed to give out, even if you weren't Indian, because an Indian could come and learn those compositions and it would be bona fide and help them. Mm. So even though the Westerners maybe never became great performers compared to the Indians who grew up in the music from their birth, we did become good mm. receptacles of the teaching. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I have I have stacks of tabla and stacks of vocal music and my friends who are sitar players and sarod players have volumes, 20 volumes big of compositions mm. because they would go to the beginning class, the intermediate class, the advanced class and those compositions were a lot longer than tabla compositions. Tabla, you know, you just take a page or two, one page back and front. They're writing out the melodies was huge note-taking. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, these parallel tracks leading a merger of bhakti classicism and bhakti chanting of mantras. Wonderful world we all birthed with these wonderful teachers. And now, of course, there's lots of Indians all over the Western world. You can study tabla with all kinds of Western Indians and study vocal of all, and there are many different styles of vocal music that you can find teachers of. And let's digress for one quick second, because we talked about a thousand years ago, the Muslims came and created this North Indian classical music which was a mixture of Muslim musicality, Sufis, with pure Hindu music over centuries. And then in, in that time, there was, a, there was a saint named Amir Khusro 
who's back about a thousand years ago. And he's credited not only with, um, some people credit him with inventing tabla, um, but he's credited with lots of innovations of merging the Hindu and the, and the Sufi cultures. He is credited with understanding that one of the reasons why they're having trouble converting Hindus to Islam was because the Hindus were singing kirtan all day long. And these guys weren't like promoting that. So he created, in Islam, so he created, he took the kirtan music in India and he put Islamic words of God on top of it and some, some, clar some storytelling. And he took the classical sargam singing, you know, that stuff, took some of the classical stuff and put it in there. And he made a hybrid kirtan form called kowali, which is Islamic kirtan and bhajan kind of, yeah. with a little bit of classical. And so all these centuries in, in North India, you've had both. Mm. Kirtan in one village and in the next village, Kowali. And if you do, couldn't hear the words they're singing, you might not even know whether which one it was. Right. Well, do you have any, I mean, I know that you have like danielpaul.com, right? From in places that you could find more information, but, you know, are there other resources that you can think of for people that want to, you know, continue in that kind of education? Well, actually, my website is tubladaniel.com, and the Ali Akbar College is aliakbarcollege.org, I believe. And they have a great website. They have a beginner's uh, class kind of thing online that's free. It's not a class. It's just a explain explains more about the music for kids and adults, too. It's really cool. And Mary Khan did that. Uh, Ali Akbar Khan's last wife, American wife, tabla player, my teacher, one of my teachers, and she runs the school now, mm. Mary Khan. Um, Jayutal.com. J-A-I-U-T-T-A-L, of course. He's got lots of ongoing stuff. So I taught workshops with Jai for two decades, and now I'm kind of pulled back and starting to put things into movies and doing some online stuff and giving him movies rather than showing up with my physical body. Right. And um, I am teaching um, from my house, yeah, and hoping to have more movies online and... Happy to do more with you because you guys are doing such great work over there. And, you know, we're so lucky that Ramdas chose Maui to move here. And now with him moving on, you guys are creating new wonderful offshoots from everything you've learned here while you've been here all these years. So, well, thank you so much. And, yeah, we, we hope to do a couple more of these because it's, you know, it's been so great hearing everything that you have to share. And there's so much more to share as well. So, yeah. Thank right, you so well, much, good, Daniel. Good luck with it all. Oh, it's so hard to cover everything. <laughs>